becomes like a fleeting memory. Whatever you grab just turns to dust. Like eye contact with a stranger, stranger out of the It's a dream that you get to make real. Passing note of the song. Glimmer, glimmer, of the ship being seen. I think you saw it, saw it. Set. All right, <laughs> it's go time. Go time to the shores. Hey, <laughs> to the shores. Happy Wednesday. Yeah. Happy <clears throat> episode one hundred and eighty-one. That's uh, it's more than the lifespan of a human being. <laughs> if we did one a year for our entire life, that would have been a lot. Yeah. Even two years. <laughs> Be a long wait. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like hardcore history, though. Doesn't he do like one a year? But then each episode's like eight hours or something. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't listened to one of those in a long time. That's a, that's a huge commitment. Yeah. <clears throat> it's like even like some of Lex, Lex Freeman's is, is a, he's getting to like some, I think one was like a five hour with the, uh, the guy who is the real estate, um, uh, con man. He went on for five hours with that guy. It was, and I listened to it all, the whole thing because it was absolutely fascinating. What just happened? I don't know. You're off. You Hello, just got Hello. canceled. Okay, I think we can just keep going. Just keep going. Yeah, <laughs> something was wrong with the uh, connection somewhere. <clears throat> um, do not disturb. So. Yeah, we've already been kind of riffing for the last hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, what do you take from that? Where, where do you want to try to go? Um, that's a good question. I think a lot of it, uh, maybe been just talking about the Nietzsche quote as far as like, he who has a why can endure any how. Oh, is that Nietzsche? Is mm-hmm. that who that is? Mm-hmm. Nietzsche? Nietzsche. Yeah, I think it all... S- spurred from my admission that I have a really foul attitude right now about life. Mm. And I was, I asked you the question, like, how do you change your attitude? Because I was thinking about, I was listening to uh, Jordan Peterson's biblical lecture series. He was telling the story of Joseph. Joseph had this I don't know that I had ever really heard the full story of Joseph, but he basically had this shit life. Like all this terrible stuff started happening to him. You know, his brothers betrayed him and then sold him into slavery. And then he ended up going to jail because the Pharaoh's wife wanted him to sleep with her and he wouldn't. So she accused him of trying to rape her. He sent, got sent to jail and like, it's like thing after thing. And yet in every scenario, he ends up being far better off than he was before. Hmm and ultimately ends up ruling all of Egypt. And I think the story is like a testament to how if you have the right attitude, there isn't any situation that you can't transform into the best possible thing. Hmm. Yeah, you didn't play the victim in any of those situations, circumstances. And I totally believe that. I, I believe that your attitude and your attention can transform your circumstances and your situation into something that's, um, that's wonderful mm. and you, you won't know exactly how that's going to happen, but I believe it's possible. And so then the question is, well, how do I change my attitude? Mm. So if I, if I recognize I have a bad attitude, what do, what do I do about that? Yeah. I think it's hard because there's, there's so many things at play here because you can't just 
change your attitude. Like, okay, right. I'm gonna have a better attitude now. Put on a smile. Yeah, go look at yourself smile. in the mirror, and, and and honestly, like sometimes that does work. You know, it. But it it it's it's not a it's it's not a fix all. It's almost like if you're not already on the journey of of that transformation, then it almost like you have to sometimes go through, you know, some people call it the dark night of the soul or, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to go into Hades in order to, or into hell in Mm -hmm. order to come out, um, refined on the other end. So there's, there's can be some of that is where we're just in denial of that hard transformational space. And there's a certain sometimes accepting the acceptance of that. Um, and then other times where you really do need to kind of like step up underneath it, you know, and change your attitude. Mm-hmm. And, but there's something about being in those situations, whether you're, you know, like in Joseph, Joseph, every moment he could have just been, man, man I didn't do that. Like right. she tried to trap me, man. Like what's right. up? Yeah. God, this is, not un- this is so unfair, you know? And, and maybe there was some of that, maybe it did feel that way. And, you know, but it seemed like it kind of, at least his attitudes portrayed overall as sort of overcoming and acceptance yet still, um, had a good attitude, you know, mm-hmm. through it all. Cause I, th- I think there is a sort of falseness too, where you should always have a good attitude. Um, like being overly optimistic or right. Happy <clears throat> or, that over denial over, almost, you know? Yeah, that can ruin things. Mm-hmm. It's like Ted Lasso's mm-hmm. constant optimism ruined his marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and then he had to kind of go through sort of a dark night of the soul. And then on their side you saw that it's you almost see those those different pieces kind of come together, the mm-hmm. the shortcomings and the overcoming aspect that was somewhat more natural to him, you know, but he had to experience the other side of that, the, the helplessness, the, Hmm. like, I'm not in control, like, you know, because he had a way of having control over his environment, which was very inspiring and led him to a lot (coughs) of great, um, successes in his life. You know, (coughs) you saw it with his coaching in general, like he really brought a lot of people, along and gave them hope and belief. And, uh, he was someone that people could lean on when they were not, uh, that when they were not in a good place, you know? So I, I recently started rewatching the first season of Ted Lasso oh, did you? for yeah. like the fourth time. Yeah. I, I just, I adore that show. Uh-huh. And I realized that one of the reasons I love the show is for exactly the reason we're talking about, which is, it, I think that the show illustrates how a person's simple attention can transform a bad situation into a good situation, even when there are people actively working against you. Mm. Yeah. You know, Ted Lasso wasn't a good coach in sort of one sense of that word. And Mm -hmm. he didn't really do anything in another sense of the word, but he showed up and he paid attention. Mm. You know, he paid attention to people, Mm. you know, like even at the beginning, Nate is the, the kit man Mm -hmm. and he can't even believe that, you know, coach Lasso would remember his name. He's just not used to anybody paying any attention to him. And, Mm -hmm. and there's that whole story arc of Nate becoming a coach. And that's all because Ted paid attention to him. And and that had its own dark night of the soul kind Mm -hmm. of moment as well. Yeah. 
Um, I think it just goes to show the archetypal nature of these kinds of stories. Mm. You know, it's in a sense, maybe it is like akin to the Joseph story in that, in that way. Mm. And it, man, I can't get enough of it. Yeah. And I believe that. And, but I don't, don't know how to enact it in real life. And, you know, one thing we were talking about earlier is just the power of, of story to relate something to us that we need to know that you can't just simply explain to someone, hmm. you know, as <clears throat> if anybody listening hasn't seen Ted Lasso, then everything we just said will probably make some amount of sense, but <laughs> you won't really feel the heart of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to watch the story. You have to see how it unfolds hmm. and not just be told what happens, but see it acted out. And hmm. maybe that's, that applies to our personal lives as well. We are in the middle of a story and we don't know what's coming next. We, we have to act it out to find out. Yeah. That's the great thing about, about fiction is it draws you into the, the story that you got, you kind of get to live through the character and, 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 and their development. And so even though we're, we experience these things, uh, intimately in our own lives, but sometimes it's good to be able to step outside of ourselves and walk through the shoes of somebody else and experience that, uh, secondarily, you know, tertiarily is <clears throat> like the book I'm reading right now, the, the main character and the will of time, like goes through this whole period where he's trying to learn how to be this important person that's more or less the whole world hangs on him defeating the dark one. And he doesn't know how to navigate this world and he finds he's angry all the time. And, and his solution was to become so hard that nothing could affect him and that, uh, that he could stand up under all this pressure. And now that I'm, it's like, I don't want to tell you that, (laughs) but anyways, there's this sort of transformation with the character where he realizes that that's not the right way to do it. Like that, he's going to break and before yeah. he can even get to the, the final boss, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and that realization, there was a sort of humility that came with that. Um, but actually, actually transformed him into the person he was one, he was, he needed to be for this sort of, you know, climax of the story. Mm-hmm. So I think there's, there's this, it's like we all kind of we all sort of come into this story in different ways and in different levels of that of that sort of character arc, you know. It's like are we in the are we in the space where we need to, to stand up and say here's where I stand, you know? Is that your space or is it more of like, you know what? I really need to grapple with my like how how I'm I'm really not capable. Like I need to somewhat mm-hmm. sit with that and sit in that space of my inability to really encapsulate that sort of hero's hero's journey, you know? Um, so I think it's hard cause it's not, you can't really, it's not prescriptive where you can tell somebody you know, like, Hey, if you follow these things, <laughs> this will happen, you know, but we're all sort of in some, in some aspect of that, that character arc of coming to the realization of that tension between, you know, false humility and pride or um, taking responsibility and then also just coming to the terms with that we're really not capable of, of what 
we feel like we're supposed to kind of encapsulate or, or be or something like that. You used the word hard a couple of times. Mm. That word jumped out at me. Yeah. Interesting. It did before the podcast too. You used that word. Well, I think that there is a temptation when a lot is being asked of you Mm. or required of you even, Mm -hmm. there's a temptation to harden yourself Mm. because that is something like protection. There's a temptation to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, Hard to become hard, to become rigid, to become structurally sound, Mm -hmm. reinforced, be able to withstand the blows. But then again, things that are hard often become brittle. Things that are hard also can't change. Mm. And I think being protected isn't the same thing as being strong. It seems like it's situational too, because there's a, uh, there was a story I was listening to today. uh, They were talking about the doctor who just lost a patient on the, uh, on the table. And it's not like he can, he can just all of a sudden stop and mourn for that patient mm-hmm. because there's somebody on the, on the table next to him that he's got to go over and see and help them not die. And so there's a certain compartmentalizing that the doctor has to do in order to save the next person's life, you know? So there, 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 there's, I think there is a usefulness and a, a healthiness to being able to have that hardness. <clears throat> However, it's, if, if you don't ever, if you, if you live that out like 100% of the time or 98% of the time or however much it's like, it becomes unhealthy, you know, but there is something about being able to stand up under that pressure and to like not succumb to grief in a moment where it's not, it's not appropriate, you know? Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. This is going to be another difficult one to, to really totally parse through, but But that's um, what we do. (laughs) So I listeners will know I went through a divorce a number of years ago and it was very contentious and it went in a way that I think divorces in the Western world often go, which is that it got into the legal system. It went in front of a judge and I think men and women tend to fall into prescribed categories. The man is the provider slash abuser. And the woman is the helpless victim slash one in need. And that can be really hard, I think, to be put into a category by the law like that and mm-hmm. to have your the disillusion of your life be drawn out on those terms. <clears throat> and I think that once the momentum gets going, it's hard to not see things without that lens or not. It's hard to see things and without looking through that lens. Mm -hmm. And so for my 
on my side of it, I, I was sort of derided as this potentially dangerous, um, potentially irresponsible. And really my main value is a, a support payment. Hmm. And my response to that, and I was in my mid thirties at the time. And my response to that was, I'm going to prove that narrative wrong. Hmm. And I'm in, in by doing and the way that I'm going to do that is I'm going to make sure that I am above reproach. I will not mess up at all. Hmm. The kids will get to school on time. Every time they will have their lunches packed appropriately. Every time I will pick them up on time. Every time, you know, um, bedtime will be this such way. Meals will be this such way. Activity time will be this such way. Like no one's going to be able to look in from the outside and tell me that I'm not a good dad. Mm. And the word hard, I think applies to that. Mm. I hardened myself and I hardened my routines and my structures such that I could not be accused of anything. Mm. <clears throat> and I think for me, that was a defense mechanism. And I could say a lot more about that, but I, what I want to point out is that I realized quite re recently that while I did do all of that pretty successfully, what didn't happen is that my kids lost part of me. Hmm. <clears throat> I replaced who I was with a set of rules and regulations and routines that were protective. Hmm. And it reminds me of this. <clears throat> this quote from C.S. Lewis that I'm, I'm going to read. This is from the four loves. He says to love it all is to be vulnerable, love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the center of a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. That word unbreakable, I love how he transforms it. Unbreakable, that's hard. Mm -hmm. Unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Mm -hmm. There's something lost there in that hardness. And I think that's why I say to be hard, to be protected, to be safe might be... Well, it's not the same as strong, competent, courageous. Mm -hmm. And those are the things you really don't want to lose. And I really had to admit that to myself and say, you know what? I've got to let my guard down. I have mm -hmm. to be vulnerable because I want to, I want, I fought to have my kids in my life because I love my kids and I want to know them, but I can't, how can I know them if I don't let them know me? And if, if what they interface with is, again, this set of rules and regulations, 
And so I think when we are confronted with really dire situations, we are tempted to try to be something like hard and protected and safe. And I think really what we need to do is be courageous and strong to step forth into the the next part of the story where we don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's funny as you're, <clears throat> as you're describing this, uh, I have a little bit of a, uh, a pessimism in a sense to this. Mm. It's like, Oh, that sounds like a luxury, you know, w- to be hard. No, to be, to be vulnerable in that space. Mm. You know, there's a certain part as a leader you're not afford afforded to sort of fall apart. You're everyone's looking to you to um for insight or direction. And mm-hmm. and if you fall apart like the doctor at the table, it's like somebody dies, you know. You know, obviously that's a more extreme circumstance, you know. <clears throat> and so some of that kind of sounds and, and again, I, I, what I'm saying, I don't think is, is right, but it does sound like, Oh, well, that sounds really nice to be able to maybe I'm, I'm maybe I'm overcompensating saying falling apart because I think that might be a little bit more extreme. It's like, it's like going all the way to the other side, you know, where, you know, the person who uh, comes into a circumstance and they just, fall apart and everything comes tumbling down around them, you know, we're on the other side. It's like someone becomes so hard that they don't interact with the world or with a person. They're interacting with a set of rules and, and ideas that what, how things should be, not how things are, you know? Well, but I think that the, the, on the hardness as a solution side of things, it's to deny the fact that something has happened, that a patient has died Mm -hmm. and say, there's no time for that. We don't have the luxury to mourn that there's that's hard. Mm -hmm. It is to suppress and push away and ignore something. Mm -hmm. And I think the more proper solution would be to say, no, what is, what is required is not hardness. What is required is strength. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm going to be strong and move on to the next thing that needs my attention. And, gotcha. and we will come back and mourn in due time. Mm-hmm. The time is not now. Mm-hmm. And I acknowledge my feelings about that. Mm-hmm. And I say, we can, those can wait until the next emergency is handled. Mm-hmm. There's this mythical creature. I, I won't be able to give you any context about him, but his name's Hahnemann, I think. Huh. He's a, he's a, like a monkey or an ape. Mm-hmm. And he has this magical power. He's the, he's the greatest warrior in all of the land, but he has this magical power, which is that in times of peace, he can, I think quite literally open up his chest to reveal his heart, hmm. to express his vulnerability, to bring people together. Mm-hmm. But if need be, he can use his strength to protect himself and go fight what fight needs to be fought. Mm-hmm. I think it's more something like that, that I will be vulnerable because that is good. 
but there are times when I need to be a warrior mm. and that requires strength. And I don't think that hardness has anything to do with either of those positions. Yeah. No, I agree. I, it, again, it kind of comes back to the, one of the points you were making earlier before the pod was that it kind of, it does matter the story that you're telling yourself or, or that you believe too, because, and then something I was kind of talking about too was, you know, the same person who's going to war and people are dying and you have to, you're having to kill people is like one is doing it for their family and to protect their country or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And the other is doing it so that they can rape and pillage. It's the same action, but just different intentions, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and it has different results on the, on the person too. So I think that's something that's interesting when you're talking about that difference between strength and hardness, which I, I, I like that distinction that you're making because like strength does have a certain hardness to it, but there is a softness. I just, I don't know, just maybe in my head, it kind of, there's a little bit more of a softness to it or like a, it's not, it has, it's more malleable where hardness is just sort of like, you just kind of set your, you're just going to go. You're not going to think about anything else. You're just going. Yeah. Well, I think strength is for something. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's an, it is for action. Yeah. Hardness is not for action. Hardness is for protection. Mm. Um, strength is proactive. Hardness is passive. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. That's really good. So I was thinking about, so the word hard also, I, I, I was doing some writing last night and thinking about how everything feels hard. Mm-hmm. So there's another use of the word hard, but everything <laughs> feels hard. Like I can't, can't get anything to move. I can't get anything to break open and change and start working with me. It's mm-hmm. like what it feels like. And I thought it feels like, it feels really frustrating to me because I feel like I'm, I'm starting things or approaching things with hope and good intentions. And it feels like, um, so like I love to, uh, love to make handmade pasta mm-hmm. and, I'm always excited when I get to do it because I really only do it, you know, like, I don't know, if I decide to make pasta, there's going to be people around and I'm excited about those people being there. And I love mm-hmm. the act of doing it and um, being in the kitchen, drinking wine and talking. And sometimes something happens where, you know, you've got the, the it's very simple, right? You have flour and eggs and a little bit of olive oil and some salt and that's, mm-hmm. that's it. And you mix it together and you start kneading it. And as you knead it, it starts to get this the the i think it's the the gluten mm-hmm. starts to mm-hmm. kind of relax and mm-hmm. it gets this elasticy uh consistency to it mm-hmm. but sometimes and i don't I couldn't tell you why i don't know if it's like you know maybe your eggs aren't fresh enough or the flowers i don't know whatever mm-hmm. instead it you're you're kneading it and it's just getting harder and harder and turning into this kind of rock mm. and it's like wait, this is not, this is the opposite of what I was excited about here. It's not working. Why isn't this working? And really there's kind of two options in that case. You either throw it out and start over mm-hmm. or you can start adding ingredients, mm-hmm. add some olive oil, a little bit more flour, maybe another egg, see if you can get it dialed in. And the interesting thing about that is, well, if you do that, now you're going to have more pasta than you needed. Hmm. And 
well, that could be its own kind of frustration. Now I've got too much, Mm -hmm. but maybe the solution to that is, well, why don't you call the neighbors or girls call your friends? Let's Mm -hmm. invite some more people over. We have an abundance now. Let's Mm -hmm. have bring more people into this, into this meal. And I thought that's really interesting. So when something becomes hard, you can either discard it or you can invite more dinner guests. And I wonder if, I wonder how much, so I started thinking about the word abundance because it evokes this dinner table image. Mm. When you have an abundance there, there's a, a table and it's full of food and there's people all around it. It's Thanksgiving dinner. It's Christmas Eve dinner. It's full glasses and red cheeks and laughter. That's abundance. And I wonder how many times something is hard and the solution at literally no cost to you is to invite abundance. Hmm. And instead, out of our frustration and maybe our hardness, we take what's hard and we throw it away hmm. and start over with our original plan in, the, in our original portions And maybe when things are hard, the solution is to increase the portion Hmm. and say, let's make more out of this. It's, eh. I don't know how, if that analogy is landing on you, but it it seemed to me kind of life changing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, yeah, you didn't plan to have a bunch of people over, but it's very rare that having a bunch of people around a good meal is not a good thing. Yeah. So there's definitely something with when things get difficult, like there's usually a, a a prize on the other side as far as, or many instances where, you know, with, with Medici specifically, just business wise is whenever, whenever I've come across something that was difficult, like those are the things I, treasure the most in the end, you know, maybe not in the moment, you know, but that's Mm -hmm. the part, Mm -hmm. those are the part, those are the things I share with people as far as, as far as, um, you know, uh, it's not the things I did right or, or that were successful, you know, it was the, it was the difficult things that, that we had to overcome and, and come out on the other side of. And so, um, but I could definitely see that idea of when you're doing that and experiencing that with other people, there's a, there's such a, um, a valuable, a valuable thing to that. Cause you're also inviting them into a situation where a learning situation also, I mean, I think, you know, when you were going through your divorce, it's like, you invited me into your life. I mean, even mm-hmm. though we were still really good friends, it's like, you know, it's like you invited me into your life. And so I actually, learn something, you know, and I think our friendship grew in, through that too. So, you know, by you doing that, you also enriched my life too, even mm-hmm. though it was sucky for you, you know, it's like, yeah. um, and then I, I just think of all the things that you've, all the nuggets and, uh, uh, lessons that you've learned through that, even though it, it you know, you definitely don't wish that on anybody, but you definitely have some, some, life experiences that you can share with other people that are helpful, you know? Hmm. 
I mean, I wonder if we even have the capacity to recognize something like abundance or something like lessons Mm -hmm. unless they're learned. There's this great song lyric by David Wilcox where he says, if someone were to write a play and try to, I won't be able to get the words exactly right, but try to write a play to prove the point that love is stronger than hate. Mm. Would you not arrange the stage such that it looked like the hero had come too late? Mm. Like all was about to be lost. Hate was going to win such that everyone watching was on the edge of their seats. I think that's something like, I mean, you could just say love is stronger than hate, mm-hmm. but if you write a play about it and you make the argument real, which is to say, make the battle real, which is to say it kind of could go either way. Mm-hmm. And then when love wins, we all celebrate. That's something like a lesson learned properly rather than someone just giving you some words that you subscribe to and say, I believe you, mm-hmm. you know, we need to see things acted out. That's how we learn lessons. And often we need to act it out ourselves in order to recognize the abundance that we have and to recognize what we have learned as something which was actually learned. Yeah. I'm kind of, I'm, there's a, well, tell me what you think about this, because as you were as you were saying that, my first response was like, the worse or better the villain is, the better the story is told, mm-hmm. because you're able to actually enter into the story in a way that demonstrates the the contrast to the overcoming a lot more. Uh, a lot more tan- tangible, you know? Yeah. However, then I kind of came to this other place where um, when you're not really sure who the villain is, like the villain is maybe the hero and the hero actually might be the villain. And there's this tension between you don't really know. And I think that that's another story that kind of helps us see is like, wait, I might be the villain. Or, you know, well, this, this is exactly what we were talking about last week with mm. the, the line between good and evil oh, being true. drawn down every heart. It's a very sophisticated story in which mm-hmm. the villain of the story is inside of the hero mm-hmm. and the hero has to defeat the part of himself mm. and grow. But I love, I also really liked what you said about sometimes you don't know who the villain is. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly clear. And maybe it's not clear because the villain doesn't present himself in a, you know, a, a burning red mask, <laughs> riding a hovering <laughs> board with guns or whatever, you know. Um, or maybe in the story it could go either way. Like they, I, they actually could be the hero and you're just like you're there in, as, as, as your intention that that character is also intention. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of this has been said about. uh Dostoevsky, that he makes his villains as strong as he possibly can. Like mm-hmm. in the Brothers Karamazov, Ivan is 
kind of one of the villains, mm-hmm. it, but he doesn't look like it. He's an intellectual. He's sharp. He's strong. He's well-dressed. He's attractive. He's a war hero. Mm-hmm. And yet intellectually he's the villain. Mm-hmm. How do we get onto that? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know how we got there, <laughs> but you got me. I got preoccupied with the the cables again because I kept hearing some weirdness in the line. Yeah, but there's a little tinkle. Um, tinkle. <laughs> <laughs> you and your words. <laughs> I got words. <laughs> Crinkling. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think we we were talking about the necessity to act out a story to actually learn the lesson and really to see what what it is that things are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I keep mentally coming back to this example. I tried to lay it out for you when we were having dinner, but it this is a similar thing. You know, I could just tell you love is stronger than hate, but it wouldn't be nearly as powerful. You wouldn't even get as close to the idea as if I told you a story that demonstrated it. And if you imagine a simple thought exercise of (laughs) somebody has never ridden a bicycle Mm. and you're talking to them and you're going to explain them, explain to them how to ride a bicycle. Do you think that there's anything that you could say to that person that would be useful to them to try to ride a bicycle? And I think the answer to that is basically no. It's like the advice is, well, no, just go get on it and push yourself off and let your, you know, you're going to fall down mm-hmm. some, but you, you kind of have to find out for yourself. Yeah. You can give them the basic mechanics. Like, sure. you know, here's the pedals. They go, they do this. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. But actually how? No, mm-hmm. you have to, you have to experience it. And I think you know, back to your word luxury, like learning things in a very deep, meaningfully rich and complex way, which the example of the bicycle, it keeps coming back up to me because I think Benjamin Franklin said, there's no such simple pleasure as a bicycle ride. Hmm. And I think that's so true. Riding a bicycle is such a profound pleasure. Yeah. And most of us, you know, don't ride bikes all that much anymore, but you can remember when you were a kid and how freeing it was. It feels like flying. It's mm-hmm. a wonderful feeling. And, um, hmm. we just, we need to experience things to know what they are. We can't just be told. Yeah. And I we, loved your left turn thing. That you oh, said. Yeah. That was really interesting to me. Yeah. You want me yeah, to say, say, tell say that? Yeah. yeah. Well, so everyone I'm sure listening knows how to ride a bicycle, but you don't also know how to ride a bicycle, even though you can do it, you don't know how you're doing it. And this is illustrated by the fact that I saw this, uh, I think it was a YouTube video somewhere. And this guy built a bicycle and installed a mechanism on it by which he could flip a switch and it would prevent the, the handlebars from turning either left or right. So you, you could have the handlebars straight. And then if he fl- flipped the switch left, it blocked you from turning left. Right. And if you flipped it right, it blocked you from turning right. So once he had the switch activated, the handlebars would only go one direction and he'd get somebody to ride the bicycle 
and say, okay, you're going to go straight and then I'm going to count to three. And on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to turn left. And at the same time, I'm going to flip the switch to prevent you from turning the handlebars right. And everybody thinks, yeah, no problem. And they get on the bicycle. He says, you know, one, two, three. They try to turn left. He blocks them from turning right. And they immediately fall over. And the thing is, you can't do it. You can't turn a bicycle left without first turning it right and vice versa. And it's counterintuitive and you don't know you're doing it, but you are doing it. And it has to do with, I mean, the explanation is really amazing. It has to do with something called, uh, well, it's centripetal force and something called precession. But when you have uh, a wheel that's turning, if you turn it to the right, the gyroscopic force is going to lean you to the left. And that lean to the left is what allows you to initiate a left turn. So you just very slightly turn the handlebars to the right. It's almost, it's imperceptible to you, mm -hmm. but you do it and you start the lean and then you turn the handlebars to the left to turn into the turn. But we don't know we're doing that. Mm -hmm. We all learn to do it. No one explained it to us, you know, you and I are sitting here in our forties. We just learned about this, <laughs> totally. but I rode a bike when I was five years old and I didn't mm -hmm. know. So I think that's extraordinary that life is full of that, that we, we know how to do things and we know we have no idea how we're doing them. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that we do know how we're doing them, that just kind of scratches the surface. And, and, and in reality, knowing how we do something doesn't hold a candle to the, to the actually doing it. Mm. Yeah. It's like that quote I was all said, said earlier is like in theory, practice and theory are the same, but in practice they're not. Yeah. And there's something that's really interesting about that is, is we can really, and there's a lot, there's, there's kind of a lot of talk about this too in the world of government and policy and politics is, you know, we talk about a lot of these things that we wish and want things to be, but when we get down into it, it's, it's a lot more difficult. It's like, you can't really just pass a law and solve problems. It's like, you have to be able to be in it experientially and practically to really understand. It's like, okay, let's solve holiness. This. Okay. If we, if we do that, then we just give everybody a thousand dollars a month. That'll solve it. Mm -hmm. I was like, wait a minute. Not everybody has the same values. So everyone's going to spend that thousand dollars in a different way. Like this person's going to take that thousand dollars and make $10,000 out of it. You know, this person's just going to waste it and need that thousand dollars, another thousand dollars next week. So we're like, okay, well that didn't work, you know? And so there's well, like, here, we'll just legislate exactly how everyone's to spend their money. And mm -hmm. then that way everybody can have the same outcomes. Exactly. Welcome to tyranny. Mm -hmm. There's a great Thomas Sowell quote. There's no such thing as solutions. There are only trade-offs. Yeah, I like that. Well, trade-offs is such a great, you know, because you do like the more control you, you, you put on things like, okay, well, we're going to make, like you just said, like, we're going to make people spend money in the way that, that we want them to. It's like, yeah. Well, are you really giving people money? Like, what do you, what are you, what are you actually giving them? It's mm -hmm. like, now you're just, you're dictating to people how they should live and how they should use that money. And then, you know, that's kind of the whole part of even with uh with the difference between socialism and capitalism and stuff like that is that you know 
what, how do we know what to spend the money on and what we need? It's like, well, you do that by the free market is people tell you what they need by what they buy, what they purchase. And if you're so busy building, like there was a car in Germany that was just absolute crap before the wall fell, but everybody had to have it, you know? Mm. And it was just horribly made. But once the wall fell, it's like that car was completely out of use Mm. and people were buying other things. It's like, um, but they had no reason to improve on it because everybody had to buy that car. And, and, you know, even though it wasn't that reliable and there were so many problems with it and there's something about that. It's like, once you start dictating to people what they need, it's like, you're no longer making the improvements yeah. that will help it be useful, actually useful to you. <laughs> For some reason, the cafeteria lunch line food <laughs> came to mind with that. It's like, also, <clears throat> well, it's just shit. <laughs> you, you remember the cafeteria <laughs> food in junior high and high school. But you did like fall in love with these certain <clears throat> gross things. That sure. You're like, like, yeah, because you were a weird <laughs> mid-pubescent <laughs> animal. Yeah. But it's like, you know, nobody's putting good food into... <laughs> public school cafeterias Mm -hmm. because there aren't any other options, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like a restaurant where if I don't like your food, I just go to a different restaurant. It's no, everyone's there. They're held captive. They have to be there and they also have to eat. And so Mm -hmm. you end up getting the, basically the minimum viable, minimum viably acceptable sustenance. Mm -hmm. If you can even call it that. Yeah. And there's no creativity. So it doesn't draw I mean, it usually doesn't draw people that are excited about yeah. what they're preparing. And right. so there's no creativity to actually improve on maybe the ingredients that they have. Or, I mean, that's kind of a pretty broad statement, but I think generally speaking, that's, that's bureaucracy in general is like you, you end up employing rule followers that there's, it's not about improving. It's about following what has been prescribed to me. And therefore there's no innovation in those types of spaces. Um, Well, I don't think it's just because you have rule followers. I think it's because there's no use for innovation in that kind of space. Why would you innovate? The problem is solved. The problem was Mm. feed the children. They're fed. Why would we innovate? Mm -hmm. The only reason to innovate is, if there is a chance that innovation will um, see, I'm already catching myself in a trap that I hate. So what I want to say is, okay, we make the food better. Mm -hmm. If I'm a restaurant and I make the food better, more people come to my restaurant, Mm -hmm. but that's not true at a public school. The the audience is captured. Captured, So there isn't any incentive to innovate. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say people can't or won't, or it would be meaningless. I'm just saying it isn't obvious that the innovation would even be noticed if no one is incentivized to notice anything because there's nothing else to compare it to. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say. You innovate the food, nobody really notices because there's nothing to compare it to. I'm not eating in a different public school cafeteria, Mm -hmm. you know, every other day. So it's just the food it, it's the food. I, there's food at the school mm-hmm. and the quality of it is unknown to me because I have no comparison for it. So innovation not only is not incentivized to happen by the merits of the market, but it's even if it were to happen, it's unlikely that it would be noticed very much, mm. which is a, 
is disincentivizing. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm going to come to school. I'm going to show up early. If I'm a, you know, the cook or whatever, show up early, put extra care in, spend extra time ordering different ingredients, all of this, and no one notices, it's, it's going to be demoralizing to me. Hmm. Why would I keep doing it? I think that this part is it, the Matthew is, principle. Yeah. Part of it is you would know. I mean, cause like if you're, you would probably understand what's happening at the other places too. And you would know that what you're serving is better. So there's, there could be like a, a certain personal pride in that, but then you're, you're already starting to make somebody who's distinct from, from most people that would take positions in a prescribed uh, job that, you know, basically tells you this is how you do it every single time. Here's the ingredients. There is no room to deviate from these instructions. <clears throat> and uh, I think there is something joyous whenever we do find even taking simple ingredients and making something that is different or better. It's like you, 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 you at least have that satisfaction and joy yourself if maybe nobody else appreciates it. But then that also might be kind of the law of diminishing returns at some point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're kind of like, but I mean, most people that fit in that category would just continue to innovate, you know, and do things differently. But maybe I'm being too romantic in this area. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think I'm really talking about individuals. I'm talking about systems. Oh, gotcha. Mm -hmm. uh, so, like, well, an individual can transform things, mm -hmm. and, and they often do. Mm -hmm. But if we're not talking about a single public school and a single cafeteria worker, mm -hmm. we're talking about all public schools and all cafeteria workers. Mm -hmm. It is. In a system like that, which is essentially that sort of net zero environment, mm -hmm. it's very unlikely that you're going to see innovation occur. Mm -hmm. It might occur, you know, and, and surely one out of a thousand it will occur, but you're unlikely to see it happen on a broad scale. Whereas in a free market, mm -hmm. you are guaranteed to see it occur. Because that's what the market does. And anyone who doesn't innovate dies. A public school can't die. Yeah. Public school can't attract new students or lose students. And again, it does at the margins. You know, there's mm -hmm. transfers and whatever. But it's basically like there's a set number of kids who go there. There's a set amount of money. There's a set schedule. Everything's set, right? Mm -hmm. Everything's the same. It's a closed environment. Nothing to compare it to. So it's just very hard for creativity to break out there mm. on a large scale. Yeah, which I mean, which you're kind of even hitting in a lot of the talk around school vouchers, where people have the cho like having the choice to send their kids to different schools. Like even us, like we we have our kids at a public charter school, you right? Know? And that's something that we were able to choose, even though we drive further for it. Mm -hmm. It's still free and it's still public, but. You know, it was definitely a, a, we were, a, we were, we were able to make that choice to, but most people don't have that choice to, or it's even limited, you know, seats at that place. You right. know, if they're not doing a good job, then people would stop going. There's nobody mandated to go to that school. Like right. as in, if you live in a neighborhood, 
your kids are technically mandated by the state to attend that school. If, if, if you're not able to get into other schools, you still have to go there. Right. <clears throat> so uh, I, I, I like the idea of, of the sort of the school voucher thing where, you know, it's like if the school's not producing, you know, and not serving the community, it's like you should be able to go somewhere else. But then you kind of come kind of in the affordability and there's a lot of social economic forces there too, that's just, which is interesting. Yeah. Hmm. But I like that. It's like, cause there's like, you need to leave space open for innovation. Even in whether we're talking about schooling or. How are we on that? I don't know. I don't have much to say about school vouchers. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> hmm. <clears throat> well, so maybe we can tie this back to the, initial question, which is how do you change your attitude? Mm. <clears throat> because this is a good place to apply the question because you might be a cafeteria worker at a public school mm -hmm. and maybe you feel demoralized. Mm. Maybe the way that you change your attitude is something like, well, take some pride in your work, mm -hmm. even though it's not incentivized. And even though, you know, it's just you, mm. Maybe you do show up a little bit early and you notice what you can and you pay attention to what you can. And maybe that, like Ted Lasso, transforms everything. Yeah, there's something in this way, like even with our managers, what we talk about is like there's things that are in your control and there's things that are out of your control. And there's things that might take longer than you want. And a lot of times, or some of the times, it's easy for us to focus on the things that are out of our control and get lost in that rather than understanding what's in your control. Yeah, and, totally. And so it's your attitude in that space where it can be transformative. If you focus on the things that are out of your control and, and then you start getting your, your staff focused on those things that are not in your control. It's like, rather than focusing on what is in your control, what's your, what's in your control to make a quality, a good beverage to have good customer service and that person will walk away feeling different. Like those are things are in your control, you know? Mm. Well, and you don't know if you really attend to what is in your control. So I like how you said that we focus on the things that are out of our control. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because the things that are in our control are sometimes seemingly so inconsequential. It doesn't seem worthwhile to attend to them. But I think that if you do, things are likely to happen that you have no ability to predict. Mm -hmm. So, so the story of great expectations, that, that novel, um, I, th I think it's Pippin is his name. I don't the think young, I've read young that, boy. which is weird. That is weird. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he is, is terrified into, helping an a, a, a escaped convict runs into him on a marsh and the guy terrifies him into going and stealing bread and booze from his parents and bringing it back to him. And he does it. And you might say, well, there was nothing in his control there. But he also, I think, exhibits some kindness in it. Mm -hmm. And then it's years later, that man ends up becoming his benefactor. Hmm. And supporting him in his endeavor to become an artist. Hmm. 
Um, you know, or it's like, you know, the story of Ted Lasso, he, he simply notices someone's name and that person ends up becoming a head coach at a different team. And it's like the story of Joseph. Joseph gets thrown into prison and he is essentially such a good prisoner that he is trusted by the warden and the warden asks him to interpret a dream. And he does that well. And the Pharaoh got, catches wind of it and asks him to interpret a dream. And so he ends up becoming the ruler of Egypt. Mm. So it's like the things that seem inconsequential can spiral out of control in positive directions if we attend to them properly. Mm. And the opposite is true. And that's what, I don't remember the context, but earlier I said something about the Matthew principle. Mm. The opposite is also true. The things that you don't attend to can spiral out of control in unexpected ways in negative directions. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's something that, I mean, I've seen over the years of different people who take on positions of authority and responsibility is that I, I, I see those who are most successful kind of see that knowingly or unknowingly as far as like, okay, here's what I have control over. And so I'm going to make that really good. Like recently I had this one manager at one of my stores and, and there's all these little things that he did. And I remember walking into the store one day and I was just like, wow, like this feels great in here. Hmm. But it was all, but he had, he had done a lot of the little things that were within his control. Like, you know, you could be like, Hey, I want to build a new bar and I want to, you know, uh, to spin and do all these things. It's like, Oh, you don't want, you won't let me, you know, it's like, yeah, it's like, well, it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to make that bar (laughs) spin, (laughs) you know, instead like they're like, okay, what can I do to make this place more inviting and just started doing things. And, Hmm. and the totality of his decisions that he made that were within his control. uh, I mean, it it really impact me. And, and uh, as far as like, what the space felt like. And you can tell whenever someone's really taking care of their baristas and giving them direction because it, it helps that they are also, it makes them more successful too, you know? Mm. Um, but then you can also see in the other direction, I've seen this also where, you know, a manager might be super negative and, and complain about everything that is wrong and it just infects everybody, you know? Mm. And there's something about kind of what we're talking about at the beginning too, is the narrative that you weave too is like, Hey guys, let's focus what's in our control. And, and then as you start to do that, like it started that, 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 that narrative of like responsibility and taking responsibility for what's in my, what's in my control really has like a positive impact on the environment around you. Hmm. And once you start to experience that, it's like, you almost want, you almost want to take more responsibility, you know? Yeah. So I almost want to say to to attempt to formulate an answer to how you change your attitude. And I think it is something like pay attention to what's within your control Mm. and believe that if you attend to it, Mm. it will transform in ways that you can't imagine or predict. Mm. And it doesn't matter how small that thing is. Like I'm reminded of Victor Frankl in his man's search for meaning where he basically says, I got to the point where I realized the only thing I had control over was the space between stimulus and response. Mm. 
And in that space is my freedom. That's where I have control. He didn't have control over anything else. Yeah. And yet there was enough freedom in that space that he went on to write a book, which is in many people's top book lists. And, you know, he, oh, yeah. he transformed society post-World War II. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I, I saw a video of him recently. I sent it to you, I think, mm-hmm. for the first time. I'd never seen him on video before. And he's this, like, very high-energy, jovial, sort of funny, uh, charismatic guy. And I think, how is it that you went through Auschwitz and Dachau and lost all of your family and your wife and you're jovial Mm -hmm. and charismatic? And I think, well, he found what he had control over and he attended to it. And out of that grew some sort of glorious garden. Mm. And I... I take that as evidence that it doesn't matter how small or inconsequential the thing that you have control over is. If you attend to it as if it matters, it will start to matter more and more. And with that, your attitude will change. I think that's probably the key to it. It usually is small. You know, I think sometimes we try to tackle these, these big things and really the thing that we need to take responsibility with is, is something that is truly small. Yeah. That's where we need to start, you know? I mean, the joke has been for a while now. It's like, everybody wants to be the CEO, but nobody wants to sweep the floors. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's like, there's something about like, I mean, I've seen it a lot through the years too, is like those who are willing to sweep the floors usually have so much more potential than those who are just come in almost demanding the CEO position, you mm-hmm. know? I'm using it as an extreme, but that's kind of, there's, there's an attitude in that. That's always been, always stuck out to me. Like I, I would almost say to the, to the letter, those who were willing to scrub the toilet and, uh, sweep the floors were usually ones that I, I saw later on in life and also at Medici, like be really successful, you know? Hmm. Well, that reminds me of, <clears throat> several summers when I was in high school, I spent the summer working at a summer camp mm. and the job I got assigned three summers in a row was to be in the pit crew, which is dishes. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing dishes for 500 people, three meals a day, that means you're doing dishes from about six in the morning to six in the evening. Mm-hmm. Without stop. Yeah. There's a lot of dishes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And before doing that, you know, my mom would ask me to do the dishes at home after a family (laughs) meal. Right. And I would Uh, bitch and moan, uh, not always outwardly, but inside just like, I just want to be doing something cool or fun Mm -hmm. and, you know, just hating it. Yeah. And I came back from doing pit crew. My mom asked me to do the dishes. I was like, sure. Yeah. It's nothing. That's nothing. It's literally nothing. And I would do the dishes and they would be done in what seemed like five seconds. And I'd be like, great. What do we want to do now? Now that that's taken care of, let's now we got time for other stuff mm-hmm. like stuff. The world is open to us. And it was like, my attitude was transformed. Mm. Not just my attitude while doing the task, but my attitude after the task. Mm. I wasn't, you know, before 
my attitude was something like, I'm disgruntled that I have to do these dishes, which means that when they get finished, I'm going to have a bad attitude when I go into the next thing. Mm. But then after I went through the, <laughs> the gulag essentially of pit crew, it's like, oh no, that's nothing. I can just fl- flick that off with, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm so happy about that, that I feel like I, I have a superpower yeah. and, and what are we going to use that superpower on next? And, and my attitude was one of openness and eagerness and excitement and well, charisma and joviality. And again, back to this, like you have to learn your lessons mm-hmm. and you have to learn them by actually experiencing them. And once you do, it transforms the way you see everything. And it's interesting too, as you're, as you're talking about that, it makes me think of, there are times in my life where, you know, let's just use dishes, for example, where I'll be on top of dishes. Like, oh, cool. I'm just going to follow Allison up as she's doing stuff. I'm going to knock them out as she's going. You know, yeah. it feels great. And you're, you know, it's like, and then all of a sudden that very thing that was like life-giving and you're serving somebody and, and you see the benefit of it becomes such a chore. You get out of practice and you no longer have that sort of framework of, you know, shoot, I used to do this for 500 <laughs> for 12 hours a day. And then, and that, and then all of a sudden it becomes a chore again. Yeah, totally. And I think there's something about <clears throat> something about the practice of, of that. They're staying in the practice of that, that keeps you in that space. And when mm-hmm. you don't do that, when you don't practice it's sort of like there's a degenerative aspect to the very thing that was life giving almost becomes, um, soul sucking. (laughs) Mm. And then maybe that comes back to the whole idea of like, you know, how do we transform our attitude? You know, I think there's something, there's, there's something in the practice, you know, which is a, which is kind of the practical, practical part of it is, is like, and again, this is, this is the hard thing too is, Hey, just do it. Just get up and go do it, you know? And then there's the other part too. Enter the forest, the place that looks the darkest to you. Mm. Yeah. That which you seek lies where you least want to look. Mm. And maybe we have to... uh, No. No. It might be. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, sorry. Well, it might be that those sorts of things, we have to learn our lesson multiple times. Mm -hmm. But I think... That when you go look at what you don't want to look at, which is like, you don't like doing dishes. How about dishes all day, every day for a month? Mm -hmm. Uh, No, I don't want to do that. But then once you do it, it transforms the whole ordeal into something that's Mm life-giving. And then, you know, maybe after a while that fades or changes and you need to look at it again. But I think that's another answer for how you transform your attitude. It's like you look at the thing you don't want to look at. Mm. You do the thing that you don't want to do and, the more you don't want to do it, the more of it you do. Hmm. And the result of that is that it transforms into something you are surprised by. You're shocked by. It's like you enter the forest in the place that seems darkest to you. What's in there? A dragon. It breathes fire. Hmm. If you confront it, what's on the other side of that? It's like all the riches you could ever imagine. Yeah, I find I'm 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 kind of in the middle of this this at the with, there's a lot of little stupid things I have to do as a business owner and 
uh, long story short, I'm having to pick up a bunch of these things that I've keep, I've put off <laughs> from yeah, doing. Right. And it's like, I'm just starting to get to where I'm benefiting from some of the things I've been mm. ignoring and putting off. <laughs> I mean, they're all little things, but they stack up if you don't like, yeah, totally. and it's like, and then you get to a point where it's like, there's too many. Where do I even begin? Yeah. I mean, I, that's kind of how I felt, you know, it was like, okay, all right, I'm going to take care of this thing. Pain in the ass, you know, probably eight hours on the phone to take care of this stupid ass thing. And then I, I got there. Yeah. Didn't quite get all the way there, but I got there. And then I tackled another one and sort of like, it was a pain in the ass. And I'm kind of more in the area where I've gotten a little bit of momentum in some of these areas and I'm starting to feel the benefit from it. Well, this is what's so hard is that our life is constantly full of these kinds of things. Mm. We constantly have a stack of things we've been avoiding, things we don't <laughs> want to do. Mm. And when you tackle one stack, you're like, oh, right, there's that other stack that I wasn't even conscious of the yeah. fact that I was avoiding. And, uh-huh. you know, and this is also... This, can be overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this this sim- very simple thing that, like, if you're in a bad mood, and I believe this, <clears throat> the way to transform is to set a goal mm. and go accomplish it. And it doesn't matter how small the goal is. It's probably better. It's small. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. yeah, it could be as simple as like anything that you need to do, anything that needs fixing, anything that needs attention, mm-hmm. find the smallest one you can and go do it. And you will feel incrementally that much better. And if you're honest with yourself about that, you have a little bit more power to do the next one. And if you keep doing that, you will be a superhero before you know it. <laughs> Totally. But we never learn that lesson exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, I tell myself that all the time. If I'm feeling angsty and down and depressed or whatever, I say, Matt, set one goal and go do it. It will make you feel better. You know it will. Totally. Yeah. And then I tell myself, fuck off. I'm yeah. going to go watch YouTube. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know? And I know that I'm doing it. And uh-huh. there's like a third version of me that's like, why do you always do this? Yeah. And then I just splinter <laughs> into a thousand people and they're all warring with each other. And then I have to just shut the whole thing down. You know, I'm just like, you know what? We're watching Instagram reels. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody shut up. Watch. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a wild experience. It totally is. I mean, again, we, many episodes ago, we talked about the leaky faucets. Like I had another one of those things mm. and I, I fixed my kid's uh, hot water handle and put it off for, I don't know how many months. And, and then one day I was just like, okay, I'm going to go fix it. I fixed it. And I went to the sink and that was kept getting clogged and I fixed it. And I, I kept going with, mm. I just, yeah, you out, get in a zone, get in a zone. I like killed like four or five things that was such an obstacle in my mind. Mm-hmm. And it probably took me an hour and a half at the most. And I got, a, I just got a lot of them done. Yeah. Um, and I, so I was surprised at myself and I was like, wow, like I feel really good. Why didn't I just do it earlier? Right. And, it, and it's hard because you don't, you also don't want to get down on yourself. It's like, it's like, you know, just kind of to be able to like experience the victory, you know, it's like, yeah. and, and I think that's, well, and I think should. that's what, start, like, I think that's what started my business Oh, taking care of all the little business things is when I took care of that sink mm. in uh, Ellie and Austin's room. That that sort of I think that was sort of the trigger that kind of got me going after all the little things I hadn't done in my business, you know. Well, and look at that transformation bleeding mm-hmm. over into different 
yeah. areas and categories. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Just a little bit of, yeah, setting and reaching a goal, fixing what could be fixed, attending to what needs attending to, and it starts a snowball effect that mm-hmm. transforms things. And I've had that experience all my life. I mean, not successfully or like necessarily <laughs> repeatedly. Like uh, I often deny myself that whole experience, but I, I will say there is nothing better than a good meal and a cold beer hmm. at the end of the day when you have gotten into the zone and taken care of a bunch of stuff that needed taken care of. Totally. You will enjoy yourself hmm. and you will sleep well. Mm-hmm. And your mind will not be troubled. It's like, <laughs> I mean, on a small microcosm, this is very male probably, <laughs> but it's like, go mow the lawn. Mm-hmm. That evening when you sit on your porch and have uh, a beer, yes. you are going to feel like the king of the world. And all you did was a stupid little uh-huh. task that needed to be done, but you feel great. Yeah. You could smell that freshly cut grass. Uh-huh. You got dirty. You took a shower. Now you're sitting there enjoying the spoils of your kingdom. Mm-hmm. God damn. <laughs> you know, it was such a joy to me one day whenever Austin, like, uh, he made some comments before, but this one day he just, he almost made that, that comment you talked about, about mowing the yard and like the satisfaction of it. I was like, he gets it. Oh, you get it. It's yeah. Like, it's like, that's probably my biggest joy is to mow the yard right before it rains. Oh yeah. Like, there's almost nothing better than that. You finish and then that rain comes and that fresh cut lawn from the, the rain coming down and, and then everything just that much greener too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like, it, that's an experience that I prepared my lawn for the growth that mm-hmm. it will now mm-hmm. enjoy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, cheers to that. That's yeah. what we should end yeah, it right there. I agree. Definitely. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for coming out guys. To freshly mowed lawns. <laughs> Love you all out there. Yes. <laughs> to freshly mowed lawns.